All right, guys, welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast. I am your host, Coach Andrew Simmons from Lifelong Endurance. And my guest today is actually a repeat guest for us. Uh, last joining us in July of 2021, we talked a whole lot about team and dynamics. And we're actually really excited now to actually get into the nitty gritty of some coaching for marathoners road racing, and even maybe a little trail running. Uh, my guest today is Ben Rosario, uh, now the executive director of NAS Elite or Northern Arizona Elite. Ben, thanks for popping back on with me. Thank you. Yeah, I was excited to get the email. I, I enjoyed last time and I'm sure this will be great as well. Absolutely. So you guys have had kind of a revolution since uh, we last talked in July of 2021. I know uh, you know we had a chance to catch up just before recording this, and you've got some new digs, a new office, as well as um, a new role and some some new talent on the team. Tell me a little bit about what's been going on since July. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very healthy period of time for us. We at the end of 21 had some roster turnover as is the case with any sports team uh, in the professional world. And it was the best thing for us because it allowed us to go out and recruit some new blood, uh, some new young hungry athletes who are super, super talented. And we did that, um, you know, myself and, and our assistant coach, Jenna Reedon uh, worked on that kind of in the winter and, and spring. And then, we got a big boost in the spring because, as you said there at the top, we we brought in a new head coach, two-time Olympian Alan Culpepper. Uh, you know, really, quite frankly, one of the best runners in U.S. history. Certainly, one of the best three or four runners in his generation. He he won the NCAA championship in the 5,000 meters for Colorado way back in '96, and from '96 to '08 was one of the top pros in the country. Made the Olympics twice, as I said, uh, once in the 10,000, once in the marathon, and so he, he just comes with all sorts of credentials and cachet right away. Um, and, and he's a great coach. Uh, he, he, he did a great job with his son, Cruz Culpepper, brought him down to four minutes in the mile in high school. And um, he, he did a great job at University of Texas El Paso for, for um, a short time when he was there. And, and he's coached a number of other athletes through the years, uh, also has a good business mind. So we were, we were happy to get Alan on board in May. And that, that kind of gave us a shot in the arm and, and sort of put us over the finish line, if you will, in that recruiting process. And we were able to sign... First, Wesley Kiptu, uh, an NCAA champion from Iowa State who's run 13-14. Then Adrian Wiltskut from Florida State, who's South African national record holder in the indoor 5,000. He was runner-up at NCAAs in cross country. Um, then Olin Hacker from Wisconsin, who was the NCAA outdoor 5,000 champ. So that was our men's recruiting class. And then on the women's side, we were able to sign uh, Chrissy Gear from Arkansas, who was a national champion in the DMR for, for the Razorbacks and also a runner up in the mile individually and uh, Abby Nichols who had run 1515 last year for Colorado uh, I think that was the second fastest time outdoors in the NCAA um, and you kind of add those five athletes to the two athletes we signed last year Alex Masai from Hofstra who was 1322 2745 guy and then Katie Wasserman who was runner up in the NCAAs in the 5000 from uh, Notre Dame so now we have this great core of young people and we add that to our veteran core, which includes Stephanie Bruce and Alphine Tulliamuk. And, you know, they've been having great, a great year, uh, both of them. Alphine won the 25K yeah. national title. Steph won the 10K national title. Uh, 
ah, it just seems like everything's rocking and rolling. And, and as you said, we just got a new office space with, with our own weight room and we're building that out now. So I, I think it's really the, the, we're, we're at a, at a place we've never been. This is the, this is the, um, this is the, the pinnacle <laughs> so far uh, of where we've been in our entire history. We have 16 athletes on the team. We're about to announce a 17th. And so we're the largest pro team in the country now. And we're just ready to, to get ourselves to a whole new level. Yeah, no, I mean, that's insane. Like you've truly taken a, a, a revolution, if you will. And I, you know, a, a great second iteration. I think everybody was so excited with what 1.0 was. And I think, uh, it seems like you guys skipped past 1.1 and 1.2 mm-hmm. and kind of got to be able to create 2.0. Um, and actually one of the questions that I had, because we did such a, a, such a fun episode last kind of talking about culture and, you know, I want to ask you, and this, this may be a little personal is like, was it hard for you to step out of the role of head coach and move into a place of executive director? Because everybody knew you as the head coach of NAS Elite. And was that a tough transition or has it been a little easier than you thought? It, it really wasn't that tough because I had been doing both roles the entire time. So my life got easier. <laughs> it's not yeah. as if... Um, it's not as if I'm taking on a new role. It's really that I'm shedding one role and focusing on another role uh, that I already had. And it's allowed us to do some of the things that I've already mentioned. One, the biggest one is, is getting this, um, getting this space that I'm sitting in right now. This, we have room for our entire staff in terms of an office space. We have our sauna is now in here in this um, new performance center that we have. We have, uh, plenty of space for mobility work, hurdle work, weight room. Uh, we, we even have a, a room that we're going to sublease to a massage therapist. So we, we've got truly a professional setup now, which was one of my goals uh, for a long time. It's also freed me up to go after additional sponsorships, um, focus a lot on different ways we can create revenue, including increasing our gear sales and our social media presence. It's just, um, it's just, I don't think I do less. I just think I'm focusing on, um, some things a little bit more than I was able to before. And, uh, Alan and Jenna are doing a killer job with the athletes and, and, and I still get to go out to workouts and, um, sort of have a pulse of what's going on with the team and throw my two cents in here and there with, with Alan and Jenna on some stuff. So, um, I'm loving life. It's all been good for me. It seems uh, like you've kind of almost in a sense, kind of taken back some of the the role that you had at big river, um, you know, kind of, kind of maybe running the show, but not uh, having to be in the day to day, which I think can be for anybody that runs a business uh, being the technician and the manager and all of those things. It's, it is so tough to do. Um, do you find for you that you're, you're able, it just gives you an opportunity to be more strategic uh, in the, in the day to day work? I don't know about more strategic. I mean, some somewhat, yes, because I have more time so I can plan things out more instead of being so uh, pressed for time. So in that sense, I've been able to be more strategic. But I think I think the biggest thing is just um, instead of cramming something into a half hour before I have to go to a workout, I have multiple hours to get things done. Um, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to work all afternoon on um, – 
getting our newest workout video out, putting it out across all of our social channels, making sure I put a little nice teaser video together for it. Those kind of, I mean, we've been putting out a workout video on YouTube every single week now for a couple of months and a, and a podcast every single week as well. And we were never able to do that before. I wanted to, <laughs> but there's only so much time in the day. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think all those things have been good. I can't, I can't remember the exact question, but I'll, I'll tell you this as well. Um, I think one thing about coaching, and I have a lot of respect for people that are able to do it their whole lives, is it's very it's very stressful to have these athletes' hopes and dreams on your shoulders, and uh, you know to be constantly thinking about the workouts and constantly thinking about paces and exactly how many repeats to do and exactly how much mileage to do in the week and and kind of working on their psychology and making sure that they're in a good place mentally. I mean, this is the honest to God's truth. I didn't realize until I made this switch, but I've been sleeping through the night now pretty much every night. And I, for years, for I'm not kidding you, for years, uh, over the last several years, was a terrible sleeper. I would wake up in the middle of the night all the time and my my, my mind would immediately start thinking about the workouts and I'd have to get up and go into the kitchen and go into the uh, living room and just pace around and I couldn't get back to sleep. And I mean, I sleep through the night pretty much every night now. So I think that was one of those things where I didn't even realize how much it was stressing me out until I wasn't doing it. Um, so that's been a nice little, um, nice little change for me. Yeah. Getting some sleep is nice. I know that feeling, that feeling of, you know, you're thinking, is this the right choice to make? And, you know, you, you start to talk to the athletes and when you're really ingrained and really kind of rooted into a team, you really start to then, it feels very fluid. Like there's a plan, there's always a plan, there's always a direction, but this, this fluidity that comes with, um, with coaching, it, it can be very tough because the thing that you stayed up all night thinking about, you'll get to the track and you'll look at your athlete and go, no, we had to do the thing I was going to think of first, or, yep, I'm glad I came with this, you know, backup, backup plan, uh, for a workout because they look like this. And, um, it's hard because when you, when you coach a lot with your gut and a lot of like understanding and knowledge, um, that stress is hard and it's good. It's good to hear that I'm not the, the only one that, that can be kept up at night by the, the thoughts of like, is this the right choice for this person? Because with what you're doing, right? You said you have 16, almost 17 athletes now that's 16 to 17 different, you know, different people. They are completely different in how they operate. You hope that they can all hopefully do similar workouts so that you're not doing 16 separate workouts, but every one of them is going to have something a little bit different, the way you talk to them, um, you know, and how you try to prime or prep that workout for them mentally, um, and trying to get a specific result. Um, it's, it is a hard, it's a hard, hard job. And I, and like you mentioned, the, the weight of not the expectation that the athletes don't really, I, at least maybe they do for you, but the, the athletes don't put an expectation. They don't go up to you and say like, Hey, you know, I need to, <laughs> I need to do well. It's implied. It's implied that they need to succeed, um, at this level from my question for you on that is, um, are you still in the trenches? Like, do you sit down with Alan um, and your team and really kind of plan that out? Because in reading the, the athletes that you've got, you've got someone, you've got a lot of 5K, you've got someone in the DMR and the mile. Um, and so how do you guys break down workouts now? Because you've still got marathon athletes and 10K and 25K athletes. Like, how, have the workouts changed with the new additions to the team? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, the, the workouts have changed with the new additions to the team because there's some different uh, physiological makeup now. Um, but I think also Alan has brought in some of the things that, that are a little different that he believes in, that things that we, we didn't do exactly that way before. I don't think there's any big overhaul in philosophy. I think he's still of the same general or he still believes in the same general philosophies that I do. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, Olin Hacker is going to be doing different things than Stephanie Bruce and Alfie Tuimuk, you know? Uh, yeah. Because ultimately he's trying to be ready in June to make the U.S. team for the world championships at 5,000 meters. And that, that requires a, a different set of skills than being ready for the New York City Marathon. And, and so it wasn't really hard for me to just step back from – all of Olin's stuff. I mean, I never coached Olin anyway. That's that's the thing about the overhaul that was nice is Alan could just step in and, you know, that's he, Abby Nichols, um, Olin Hacker, Adrian, um, uh, Wesley. Uh, I mean, basically Alan's been coaching them the whole time now. So that was easy and I don't really have much uh, – I haven't really had much to say uh, to Alan and Jenna about those athletes. Um but I've still, of course, sat down and talked about the marathoners, and we've had so much success in that event, and I, I'm still very passionate about that event. So, yeah, I would say that I'm still involved um, on that side of things. Yeah, and, and I think that's that also has to feel like a relief. We hired some new staff on our side, on the youth side, and that's such a nice, seamless transition that when new athletes come in, that's the world they know. And so it's, it's, it's much harder when you're the one that everybody knows. And then you try to bring somebody else and they're like, I don't know if I trust this person. And it can, it can be hard. And that was actually going to, that was kind of the basis for my question there of just trying to understand, like, has there been, um, also so it sounds like some great relief, uh, for you, that's like, okay, I can give up this thing that was a stressor in some ways. And, um, it sounds like you and Alan have really great, uh, level of trust for one another and respect. Oh yeah, completely, completely. And, and, uh, and the athletes were all prepped for this beforehand and had an opportunity to come to grips with what this whole thing was going to be. And, and then, you know, Alan's done such a good job coming in and, and gained their trust very quickly. And, yeah, I don't think there's any problems on, on that front. And if anything, it's better than it's ever been for them because now they have mm. Alan, they have Jenna, and of course they can still chat with me and, um, you know, I'm going to toe the company line, you know, <laughs> I'm going right. to try to say exactly what Alan and Jenna uh, say, but, um, but yeah, you know, they have three people now. I mean, that's, we're pretty proud of that actually, because a lot of the, the pro groups over the years, you know, it's been kind of a sort of a skeleton staff, you know, often it's all based around one person, the coach, you know, you often hear people yeah. say Jerry's group, you know, or Dathan's yep. group now uh, in, in Boulder and, and that's fine. But uh, we, we prefer to think of ourselves as NAZ elite, you know, we're not Alan's group and we weren't Ben's group before uh, we're a complete comprehensive program. We're an organization. And, and I'd like to believe that, uh, you know, 15 years from now, there'll be a different head coach, you know, and the team will still be going strong and there'll probably be a different executive director as well. Um, but, but we're not built around a coach. We're, we're built around an entire uh, culture and organization. And I, and I think that's so important because over the years you've seen so many groups that, you know, are, they rise and fall at the, you know, at the coach. And I think to create a, um, 
I mean, really, truly, it's a, it's a, it's a business around the athletes that can be supported. Um, and, and they get what they need. You know, you start to get to 16, 17, that's more than a coach can handle realistically. Um, and to do the best job they possibly can. And so that's where you'd see athletes fall apart and say like, I'm not getting the attention that I used to get or things like, right. There's misgivings that can come with that. So it's just really exciting to see that you guys have taken a model that really hasn't been, uh, created before, right? Like you said, Jerry's group, like, you know, that's, that was, that's a, that, that was a one man show and it was on his shoulders. And so to shift into a place now where it's like, we all share the burden and we can all be, we can, you can have three experts now and it's not anybody's ego getting hurt about, it's not Alan's group. It's not Ben's group. It's not Jenna's group. It's, it's NAS elite. And that's, that stakes more into the the needs of a business, which is, which is exciting. And the way, honestly, it should be, because this is what's truly supports the best interest of the athlete and not always the best interest of the coach. Yeah. And that was, that was the thinking too, with, with me, um, focusing on the director position, because I don't want Alan to have to make social media posts. I don't want him to have right. to write the newsletter, <laughs> you know, um, I'll do those things and he can focus on the nuts and bolts of coaching and the relationship building with the athletes, same with Jenna. And that way I know the athletes are being taken care of in full because one of the things that I'll tell you, one of the things I thought was really difficult when I was trying to do everything was actually the injured athletes, you know, that that's one of the mm -hmm. toughest things because there's always going to be somebody dinged up and, um, you know, kind of human nature is you, 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 you kind of have to focus on the people that are healthy, uh, particularly when I had all these other things to do, but you know, I, I've really, um, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that moving forward, you know, that won't be the case anymore. And, and, you know, Alan and Jenna can make sure that they're really doing right by the, the people who are a little bit injured, um, and, and getting them back to where they need to be physically and mentally, as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is always it. And I think to anybody out there that's listening, that's like, Oh, people are injured. Like, I think, yeah, people get injured. It's part of the process of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. When you're, when you're, when you're an athlete, you're going to get injured because you're always trying to ride the line of what's the highest performance for my body. Cause to say, to go out and go at 90%, uh, all the time, like, sure, that's, that's a place that lives in safety, but then you always have to wonder what more is out there. And did I give that like reaching for a hundred percent? And I think this is where I'm excited to talk to you about training is like, everybody's got their own hundred percent. And sometimes you hit 105% and you have that great workout. But on the other side of that is, uh, you might feel dinged up for a couple of days and you might have to, you know, learn where those limits are and how those things change. Um, but to, to take any program and look there and say, you know, injuries or this or that, you're also dealing with 16, 17 people that have different mechanics and they need different things. And so some people need massage every week. Some people need physical therapy and dry needling and all those things. And what you're doing at Nazalite is creating a place where now they don't have to go 10 places. They can go one. You can do it in-house and uh, you're at the end of the day serving the athlete where they're at and bringing it to them instead of asking them to go find it. Yeah, we try to be as comprehensive as possible. No doubt. Well, I I'm, I love this because I feel like this is um, 
like we said at the start, like this is a new frontier, um, for the sport of, of running. I feel like there's, uh, we've known that we're inside this new resurgence, uh, for professional running and things have certainly changed, right? We've seen some, some things at the top of the sport from, uh, like the world marathon majors have completely changed their pricing structure and how they pay out things. Um, you know, and, and it's, uh, we've seen off, of course, the advancement with shoes, which we, we didn't even talk about, um, and how that has really changed the game. But I think what hasn't changed at the end of the day is we've made tweaks, but I don't think there's, there's a whole lot to be said, uh, in terms of revolutions with training. I was, um, part of a conference in December, uh, with, um, with coach Simmons actually, uh, down in Colorado Springs. And uh, we had a, a young fellow from University of Michigan on to talk about what is the real advantage of uh, a shoe with a carbon plate? What's the real advantage there? And one of the things that he told us in his, um, you know, in his presentation was that it's, it doesn't just make us faster, right? Shoes, carbon shoes aren't there to just make us faster. And we get that quote unquote 4% of speed, but it also limits how much we take up, uh, in terms of how much force we absorb. And so what that also means is that we're not as tired. If you could do seven by a K in, you know, your, your trainers or whatever, now you might be able to get eight or nine. And so we can actually truly focus on hitting the aerobic system before the, the muscular system breaks down. We get, a, we get to buy a little more time. Um, which I found to be super interesting. And I, I just had to ask because I'm curious, have you noticed that with new shoes, especially out of Hoka, that you're able to get more, um, more bigger workouts out of your athletes now that that's changed or has it kind of always stayed the same? Well, we're, I would say that we're in the process of learning. So Hoka's Rocket X2 is is not out on the market yet. It'll be out on the it'll be out on the market available to the public in March of 23. But we we got our first pairs in the spring of 22. And Stephanie Bruce was the first one to race in the Rocket X2 and that was in Boston and she did feel like it was a big difference. And you know, you you say carbon, but of course it's not really the carbon. There's been carbon in shoes sure. for a while now. It's re it's really the PBAX foam and the um the yeah. geometry of the shoes, uh, particularly the foam. Uh, but um, the the way that we're looking at it is with sort of a oh, I guess you would say a scientific eye where. We're trying to do exactly what you're discussing. We're trying to learn, hey, what does this mean? How much more can we do? How much more should we do? Is it a density thing? Does it mean we can work out more often? Is it a volume mm -hmm. thing within the workout, as you mentioned? Does it mean we should be doing more repeats? Um, does, it, um, does it mean that we are going to recover from races faster? Maybe it's a little bit of all those things. And so I think we're still in the learning process. The early results for us, because now we have these shoes for every single athlete on the team. And wow. I would say that we're seeing certainly the performance difference. We're running faster in these shoes. There's no question about it. But we are seeing some of that ability to bounce back a little bit quicker than before. Um, you know, we've been, you, you said maybe there hasn't been revolutions, but I would say one of the things that's happening right now in the professional world is there's a lot of copycat going, uh, copycatting, uh, if that's a verb, going on um, <laughs> from over in Norway. So the Ingebrigtsens. 
and Jakob mm-hmm. Ingebrigtsen and his dad and his brothers and what they're doing with double workouts. So running a threshold session in the morning, coming back and running another threshold session in the evening, uh, maximizing the time spent in that very, very important zone. And, and I do think that <clears throat> there's merit to that training. And I think there's the ability more so now than ever to do that type of training uh, because of the shoes. That's, that's exactly kind of what I wanted to dive into today is like, you know, we're, we're seeing now that it's, you know, when, when we move from an amateur space into an elite space, I mean, the first thing that a lot of people would say that that changes is, is mileage. Um, and I think, you know, having been coached by Brad Hudson personally, one of the things that I saw on the upper end of things in his training when I was racing under him was like, we would do like a long run in the morning and then maybe do some sort of density in the evening. And the thing that I had to learn how to do was recover aggressively. Um, and you know, that there were some things about that, that I really liked and some things that totally didn't work for me. Right. Um, and I, I just, I couldn't do those as often as some of my teammates could. Um, but the, the double threshold session, like, can you describe for someone that's out there, like what, what that would look like first workout in the morning and then like second in the evening, like, are we thinking a straight, straight threshold? Is it more broken? Um, how, how, what is a workout that you can share that's had, uh, that you use, use somewhat often? Well, you know, Alan's starting to incorporate these things with certain athletes that we know it, it makes sense for. And, and we're, we're gathering the data from, from those athletes and those workouts. And then, I think you'll see more and more of, of the athletes on our team doing these types of sessions. But ah, an example from recently would be, you know, two by three miles in the morning at a very conservative sort of sub-threshold kind of effort. So what what we might call in the pro world marathon effort. So the, the, the effort you can race at for about two hours and 15 minutes, give or take. Um so two by three miles at that effort is not really very hard, you know, with a couple of right. minutes rest in between, but it is six miles of, of work. Um, right. And then coming back in the evening and doing, let's say 10 to 12 times one kilometer at true lactate threshold effort. So in the morning you were at sort of sub threshold effort, uh, pretty smooth, pretty easy. And then uh, in the afternoon, you came back and ran a little bit faster, but you still kept it at at, at threshold, uh, meaning the race you the pace you could race at for about one hour. Um, and I think that's in general uh, what's been working. And, and and we've also flipped it where the morning session is maybe a little bit more of the straight lactate threshold work, and then the evening might be a six mile run where you sort of have the option to pick it up over the course of the six miles and get down to sub threshold, but, uh, but you don't do the whole run at that pace. So those are a couple of examples, but there's a lot, there's a lot of different variations. And I think one thing to make really clear for anybody that's listening is like, this is, I mean, we're talking that you're probably accruing like, you know, warm up and cool down in the morning, two by three miles. If you just did at the minimum two miles of warm up and cool down, that's already 10 miles in the morning. You come back to do 10 to 12 by a K that main set alone is looking at six, seven miles, not including the rest in between, even if it's just a 200 walk, say to, to, to close out something like that, you're still looking at, you know, quite a, quite a big density. Like that's a 20 mile day. Um, 
within that. And so is there a way that someone who might be, and, and I'll focus kind of in that, you know, and again, we're going to try to bring this down because you do have a new book I want to talk about. Um, to bring that down to somebody else, it, do you still feel that for someone that's maybe a three hour, 245 kind of person, do they need to look at it as two quality sessions inside a day or is doing say that uh, two by three miles at a pretty conservative, you know, marathon pace. And then in the evening shaking out for four to six miles, is that still a valid way of accruing miles and, and, and still getting some good aerobic density? Oh, that's still very valid. Of course. Um, you know, there's a couple of reasons that I don't necessarily suggest people try what I just described you know, I think it's probably more so for the professionals that should be doing it the, the way I described it. I, there's two big things. No, number one is is just logistics. <laughs> you know, you talked, you use the phrase recover aggressively, and the pros can do that because they get done with that two by three mile. They go home, they take a nap, <laughs> they eat a super nutritious meal, they um, relax, they do absolutely nothing, <laughs> and then they right. go do that second run. Whereas the amateur runner has to go to work. So to, to to imagine that it would be feasible to do two hard sessions in one day and in between work eight hours, I, th I don't think that's feasible, you know? And then the other thing is, look, the professionals are professionals for a reason. And almost above all else is they're typically more efficient. <laughs> Obviously, they have, you know, typically better lung capacity as well. Um, their body makeup is is a certain way, but but they're they're very very efficient, and so they're they're asking. You, you talk about the shoes asking less of your muscles, tendons, ligaments, bones. That already was happening with pros naturally, inherently because of how they were they were built. I mean, that's why they're pros, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they can automatically recover faster than amateurs because they asked less of their body uh, with each stride. And, and I think that's really, really key to remember. So it's not like you're, um, <laughs> we just have to live in reality <laughs> about, about, uh, about our capabilities and our limitations. Um, what I do think that the amateur runner can take from some of this new, this new training that's out there and, and from the fact that the shoes are helping them recover faster is they can also probably increase the density uh, of their training. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just don't know if it's double sessions. Exactly. Like even as I look at it, like most of the time for a marathoner, six to eight by a K is, is hardy enough being able to move into the realm of one or two more reps. Um, that's you know, right. that's, it's, it's, and that, but that one to two reps, right. That's, that's a 10 to 15% increase in some workouts. And that's, that's huge, right. That's more time under tension. Um, and that's right. That's where the results are made. Um, and, and I think the, the point to prove here is that, right. Like <laughs> your workout is only as good as your recovery. And like you'd mentioned, is that like, if you're someone that has to go to work, it's not just a physical manifestation of right. That you're, you're having to physically go move around all day. It's also the mental piece of this. I can't imagine doing that workout in the morning and then, you know, mentally coming back and doing another hard session later in the day. That's a hard day. That's a really hard day that like, yeah, I'll need a nap in the middle of that too. <laughs> just thinking. Yeah, through I mean, well, you can't, you know, 
maybe you can imagine doing it once, but can you imagine doing it two, three, four, five, six, seven weeks in a row, you know, and it's going to catch up to you. And so, yeah, you just have to be realistic about where you're at. But I, I, I think that if we could go back a step, what did I say? You're trying to maximize the time spent in that threshold zone. And I think that that particular training zone, that sort of one hour race pace all the way up to maybe let's say two hour and 30 minute race pace. So all the way from threshold to what you might call sub threshold, that that's what I've been preaching my whole career. Uh, that's the zone right. we should be hitting, 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 hitting. That's where we can make the most gains. And perhaps these shoes can be helpful in that realm as well, because like you say, we can do more work in that zone. The amateur athlete who's used to doing 10 by 800 can try to bump it up to 12 or 14 or 15 by 800. I know that sounds crazy, but it, it, it really isn't that crazy. If you're doing it at the correct pace, it's not that crazy and you'll be better for it. Um, and I, I think the shoes are helping people feel that sort of feeling that the pros have been good at for a long time, which is just being in total control, just totally efficient, um, able to run at a certain pace that's pretty fast, but not crazy fast and just, just master it. And that, that is, um, that's really the key to this whole thing. If you ask me. Well, and, and I think this is as good a time as any to like talk about, you do have a new book, wrote it with Matt, Matt Fitzgerald, and it's essentially uh, in the spirit of what we're talking about. It's called Run Like a Pro. And with that, it's, if I can't recover like a pro, I'm also physiologically not built like a pro, uh, but in my mind, I treat myself as one, I'd like to think. Um, and so with that, I think one of the things that I want to understand here, because I think people are going, okay, cool. I like this. I've got the super shoes. I've got the, the, I've got these things. I've got the desire to want to push myself. Um, but now the question is, is how do I know what is the correct zone? And so in the book, I know you guys share some training plans and things. And the first question that I had about the book is what is your protocol? Uh, as someone that does coach pros, what's your protocol to help somebody determine their zones? Do you guys do like a 5k test? Just go out, run a hard 5k and use that to determine and extrapolate. Or do you have a specific way that you recommend for people to go and find their zones? Well, once again, the pros are at an advantage because they, <laughs> they do, <laughs> because they, they have these different races that they do, you know, and, um, for example, 10 K on the track, you know, the amateur doesn't really have access to that. Um, but we have a lot of different data points that we, that we pull from, uh, also another advantage, yet another advantage is that the half marathon for the pro is usually for the guys, it's right around one hour, <laughs> one hour, one hour, one, one hour, two. Um, so that's pretty much lactate threshold, threshold pace. And then the pro women, you know, 107, 108, 109, 110, also very close. So it's kind of like they're just running their half marathon pace, but for, for the amateur who runs his or her half marathon in, you know, an hour 45, that that's actually not lactate threshold pace. That's slower. Um, right. but, but I would say that, I would say that you just want to use the calculators that are out there. Um, I don't want to be biased. Uh, there's plenty, uh, but but you find one of these online calculators. You talk to your coach uh, about the calculator that he or she likes, and um, you plug in a recent race time that's really realistic. You know, you don't you don't yep. plug in 
your 5k from five years ago that you ran on a downhill course <laughs> you plug in the 5k you just ran you know uh or you talk to your coach and you say okay be honest with me if i ran a 5k now what would i run you know um mm. i think that's the biggest thing is you, you can't you can't plug these things in based on your goal time you need to plug them in based on where you're really truly at right now that way you're not chasing a time you're letting the fitness come to you. And then the fitness uh, on race day that you've built up can help you and guide you in terms of determining your goal for, for that particular race instead of just making up the goal arbitrarily four months out. Well, and that's that's just it. Is uh, I think the, the, the points you've talked about throughout this is like, let's live in reality. Let's live where we are right now and work towards where we want to be. And it's more about you'll get there as long as you're doing everything right in the path to that. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that as we kind of talk about some of these exciting pieces of work, um, I was reading, um, kind of a, an overview of, uh, Renato Canova's, uh, training theory. And one of the things that he said is trying to never lose, certain parts of your fitness, not training super hard all the time, but making sure that you're always regularly going out and hitting hills or hitting some speed work. And maybe you're touching, you know, the anaerobic systems, you know, pretty frequently. Where do you sit with that? Do you feel like for you that a threshold is that zone in that place? Or do you feel like you still try to kind of mix in, um, you know, different aspects of training or different modalities? No, you should definitely be doing all the zones all the time. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. What what doing a lot of threshold allows you to do is that other stuff, <laughs> and it's going to be better. You're going right. to be better for it. Um, and so, yeah, no, no question. Um, you know, I, Olin Hacker was on the track this week doing or last week doing some three hundreds. Uh, he's nowhere near racing on the track yet, but he's just touching it. You know, he's just touching it occasionally, and. I think you have to do that. I think that's absolutely what makes the most sense. The days of the, the, the straight pyramid training where you did nothing but base work for three months and then nothing but hills for a month and then nothing but threshold for a month and then finally nothing but VO2 for a month or, and then finally anaerobic stuff, that, 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 that's gone. The, <clears throat> to be fair, Lydiard really, Arthur Lydiard was never really that strict with that anyway. I think that's just kind of what people thought he was doing. <laughs> anyway, um, I agree with no, you. I, I think you should be, you should be training the, the different zones all the time. And, um, there's so many different ways to, I call it sneak that stuff in, you know? So again, let's say your workout for the day is eight by 800 and you're doing it at maybe a little faster pace. Maybe you're doing it at, let's say critical velocity pace. So what you might call 30 to 35 minute race pace. Great. You do that session. You take three minutes rest after your last 800, maybe, maybe even five minutes rest and you go outside the track and there's a little hill and you run, you know, um, five times 150 meter hills. Um, maybe you, um, worked out on Tuesday. You've got a big long run on Sunday, uh, you want to do something on Friday, but you don't want to do too much volume. And you just did a big threshold session Tuesday and your long run is going to be really aerobic, obviously. Um, maybe that's a great day on Friday to do uh, 10 or 15 times a 200 meter, meter hill. Um, I just think, 
you just sneak this stuff in throughout the year all over the place. You do you do drills and strides, you know, the day before a workout, uh, after an easy run. And, and those strides are speed work, <laughs> you know, and, and you don't think of it that way because it doesn't it's not structured like a like a workout, but you are doing it. And so um, I just think over the course of a training segment and, and then over the course of a year, you, you should be able to look back and say, oh, yeah, this was speed. Oh yeah, this was power. Oh yeah, this was um, uh, this was five k work. You know, um, it's just kind of it's just kind of um, it's kind of a little bit of um, this this idea of layering. You know, uh, instead of always feeling like one workout has to be one thing and you're only working on this one thing that day, uh, I think you can layer it and work on. A, multiple things, uh, in any one day and and of course in any one week. Well, and and I think to your point that that becomes so important when we talk about racing at the highest level, because, you know, we're not robots. We don't go out and set out and say, okay, we're going to go at 440 pace. At some point that race is going to hit, you know, critical maths. You're going to hit a place where it's like, okay, now it's, now it's time to race, right? Like we got to that end point and you have to have that gear, um, and, and have to have had, you know, that in your training. So you can tap into that. It's not just there, you know, you can't just hope it has to have been something that's been practiced. Um, and I think that's so, so vitally important. I love the idea of, of layering, you know, one one thing, one of our friends, I was reading one of his uh, training logs from his athletes, uh, John, Dal- John Dalby at Mountain Vista High School. One of the things that he always noted um, was that almost every single day, he says, move your feet fast every single day. And so he'll give everything from, you know, five by 60 meter hills to as like hill sprints, but they're sprints. They're truly sprints. You're going out and you're going to walk back, but they're 60 meters. They're short, or maybe they're a hundred meter strides. Um, and he's like, do something every single day that when you are training and training for something, move your feet fast every day. And I talked to him and I asked him about that. And he said, well, it's just simply a neuromuscular thing. If you're practicing moving your feet fast, guess what you get good at doing? Moving your feet fast. So (laughs) is that something that you feel like you, you try to incorporate? I I know you said that doing those things is important, but do you find that strides are just something that you guys do before your workouts or is it still something that's ingrained every single day for you? No, we take them very seriously. You know, once a week, we so seriously that we meet up for a specific, uh, it's not a, it's not a hard workout day. It's an easy workout day, but after the run, Jenna and Alan meet up with everybody and they do, uh, form drills. They do hurdle mobility work. They run strides over wickets so that they're working on their range of motion and their quickness. And, uh, and then they do core work as well on that day. So, um, and then there's more, there's unstructured, you know, um, drill sessions and stride sessions as well, but at least once a week we do a very structured session. So yeah. I, and, and oftentimes I did this and Alan and Jenna do this as well. Um, you know, we'll add Hills to the end of a workout uh, or, or sometimes the beginning of a workout and, 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 uh, do the Hills first and then go to the track and do some repeats. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to do it, but I think to John's point, you're just making sure that you are touching that, zone where you're moving fast. Um, I think that's really important. It's really important to stay athletic. It's really important, especially as we get older, because 
you know, again, if you're speaking to amateur runners as well of all ages and all abilities, you, you don't want to, um, lose your form. You know, you want your form to continue mm. to be as good as it can possibly be. And if you always are running, let's, let's just say it's slow. Um, you, you're going to lose some of that range of motion, some of that quickness, that flexibility that is required, uh, if you want to run as fast as you possibly can. Yeah. And I think to that point, um, hopefully people mentally didn't gloss over athletic, you know, so much of running, especially road running is done in, in one plane of motion. Uh, we've, we've got three planes of motion to, to consider. And one of the things that's really changed my training in the last five years and a lot of the athletes that I work with is lateral movement, like being truly athletic and, and being able to move, you know, laterally, it's huge for trail runners. And I think it's, it's the next revolution is, is lateral work for trail runners. Um, but also just feeling mobile and, 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 and being mobile and staying mobile and having a good, you know, healthy stride, um, you know, doing lateral work where you're pushing left, pushing right, uh, even cutting, you know, we have, um, I mean, a, a big shout out to Des Wilford. He comes out and he's phenomenal at the work that he does. Um, but he's by majority worked with basketball and football players. And I love to bring him in for our youth program because he's teaching athletics. And I, I love that you used athlete because that's how my wife and I have always viewed it is that you have to be a good athlete. You don't, you're not just strong. You're not just a fast runner. If you are athletic, then you are able to adapt into almost any situation. When someone falls in front of you on the track and you can jump and push hard left and not have it tear your ACL, um, that's a really good thing, right? You're also a lot more durable um, and you're able to withstand a lot more um, and not the usual fragile roadrunner that I think has haunted and, and followed so many runners is that they're not athletes, they're runners. Um, and I, I really believe it's important to integrate strength training into that. And I know you guys do too. Uh, is it two times a week that you guys try to integrate like strict strength training and not just the mobility session you mentioned? Correct. Yeah. We meet with our strength and conditioning coaches as a group twice a week for an hour. All of the routines are individualized. So each athlete comes in, gets their sheet, their sheet is unique to them. The exercise, exercises they are doing are based on their biomechanical history, their injury history, or their biomechanical makeup, excuse me, their injury history, what race they're training for, um, both in terms of what date that race falls on and what the specific demands are of that race. Are they running a hilly marathon? Are they running a, a 5K on the track? Um, there's different demands that, that those uh, different races provide us and we need to prepare for those, those challenges. Um, and so, yeah, that's a big part of what we do. And when we're in the weight room, it's not just about preventing injury. That's such a, that's such a, a old nineties kind of uh, thinking, you know, uh, we're, we're mm -hmm. in the weight room to get, to get better. <laughs> we're in the weight room to get faster, to get stronger, to get more powerful so that we can perform better. Uh, injury prevention is part of what you do in the weight room, of course, but I would say that, uh, the, the biggest reason we're in there is to, is to help our performance. Absolutely. And you know, that injury prevention piece, like, you know, to talk through that, like that's where a PT fits in. But what you'll find is that if you spend enough time in PT, if you're un unfortunate like me to have, have experienced some injuries over the years is that 
all PT is like, it's just pre-strength training, right? Like that physical therapy work is, it eventually leads to the fact that you have some disproportionate weakness somewhere in your body that is leading to some sort of probably mechanical deficiency or, or how you're changing that. And so, um, I, I agree with you that, you know, you were in the weight room for the exact same reason is that it's a performance advantage. Um, and it just means that you can stay, stay at those speeds, uh, for longer. It's, there's just, there's no other better way to describe it other than it. It's, it's, it's a performance enhancer for sure. And anybody that doesn't believe that, um, ask the guy that beats you, if he strength trains and you'll, you'll probably, probably find out that answer pretty quick. Let's, let's talk real quick because one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about today, I, I mentioned that you have a new book out, uh, alongside Matt Fitzgerald, uh, run like a pro. I believe this is your third book, uh, but this one really digs into, um, a lot more training. It has some training plans in it that people can find, um, kind of want to hear a little bit about the writing process and partnering with someone like Matt Fitzgerald. Yeah, sure. So I know Matt from when he came out here in 2017 to train with our team he wrote a book about that experience called Running the Dream. And he was a member of the team for, for three months while he trained for the Chicago Marathon. And, and I wrote all his workouts and I coached him and I went to his sessions and, uh, you know, I was in Chicago and he, and, he, and he ran under 240 for the first time in his life at the age of 45 years old. It was a 10-year-old PB, PB that, he, that he broke there. Um, so we were really proud of, of what we were able to do together, he and I. And we, we remained uh, friends uh, since that time. And he had always talked about writing a book together that was more folk, because that was really a story. Running the Dream is a story about his, his time here. It's not a how-to, uh, but he always felt we would, we would write a good how-to together if we, if we teamed up. And so that's what we did. It's, it's, um, it's really, it was really a joint effort where he wrote the chapter, if you will, and sort of gave the scientific reasoning behind each of the different topics uh, or each of the different, um, ah, what would you say? Like, you know, there's nutrition, there's recovery, there's pacing, there's, um, there's a number of, each chapter is its own topic. And, and, and we're sort of giving you our theory on, on that topic and why it's important. He's giving you the scientific evidence for why it's important. And then I'm giving you anecdotal evidence of why it's important based on, uh, my, my, uh, my years of coaching pros and, and people of all age of, ages and abilities. And I even throw in some of my own stories from my own running career. So I'm just the storyteller in this book. Um, kind of, I, I kind of get to play the fun part and I, and I throw some stories at you and, and try to convince you that, uh, pacing is indeed important <laughs> and nutrition is indeed important, et cetera, et cetera, based on my, um, my experiences and the athletes I've worked with. And then, and then he digs into the nitty gritty and he, he uh, references all sorts of studies and uh, research. And uh, I think it's a comprehensive approach and I, and I hope that people like it. People seem to, it's been out for a while now and it's, it seems to be doing really well. Yeah. Run like a pro, even if you're slow and it's, it's, um, it's exactly what we wanted to do. No, I, I love it. I, um, I was lucky enough to meet Matt, uh, you know, earlier this year at the Austin uh, Marathon alongside his 80-20 group that was out there for the Austin uh, half and full marathon. And, uh, you know, I've, I think any coach that's, uh, that's been around long enough has, has bumped into the 80-20 method. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, perfect 
80-20 all the time. Um, but I'm curious to understand that as someone that coaches pros, I think this is this is an exciting question to kind of dig into is that have you found that that 80-20 method holds up the higher up you go in mileage um, from a density perspective? Um, or is it really one of those those tools and models that um, it, 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 it kind of hits its hits its limits. Cause I'm, I'm curious to understand that because I've, I too have seen that as I coach faster and faster athletes that I'm like, it still applies. 80, 20 is still the rule that I think, and he started to put some science behind it, but I'm curious to see that. Like, you know, I, I found my limits at maybe a hundred miles a week with some of my athletes. Now it goes to 120, 140 and doubles and two threshold workouts. Uh, curious to see, um, if you've noticed that that trend stays true. I think that it does. Yes, of course. It's as you said. It's 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 not like every week you're sitting there dissecting every single mile and, and saying, "Okay, is this in the eighty percent or is this in the twenty percent?" Because of course, there there's it's a spectrum, you know. Um, but in general, the idea behind eighty twenty is that the vast majority of your work is actually easy running, and that that absolutely holds up. The vast majority of the week for any of our athletes here. Uh, from a percentage standpoint, is easy running. Is it always exactly 80% easy, 20% hard? No, if you dissected it, it's probably not exactly, but it's probably not exactly for anybody, Matt included. Um, it, it's close though. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think the, the philosophy holds true no matter what your, your ability level. And, and it's just that idea that, look, you can't run everything hard and you can't run everything easy. Um, you have to do some hard work if you want to get faster, but you have to recover from that hard work if you want to get faster. And so that, you know, that's the basic philosophy. Exactly. And that's, that seems to plague so many runners and they'll, they'll hear it for the umpteenth time on a podcast is that, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you do have to be structured and, you know, we'll, we'll say the famous phrase of easy days, easy, hard days, hard. But the reality is, is that, um, it's less about, you know, sticking to that terminology of easy days, easy, hard days, hard, at least how I interpret it. And it's more about be structured and be deliberate about your training. Um, and you know, when you have a day that says, Hey, this is an easy day. Well, actually allow yourself to recover. Uh, because if you don't, you're actually only cheating yourself. Um, and, and that's actually where I think I've seen and watched other pros who get really hungry or they, they get, maybe, maybe too hungry and they start to get, um, the, you know, that, that easy day ends up being, you know, a little, a little too fast. And what do you start to see? You start to see those results start to slip. You start to see those injuries pop up more often. Um, and it's not just a breakdown because they've been in the game for so long. It's the fact that, um, they're not allowing themselves to stick to the, the principles that do work. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the only reason I was hesitant at the beginning answering that question is the one thing that's a little bit confusing maybe is that easy hard. I think easy is kind of under easy to understand or easier to understand, but the hard is the is the tough part because actually the hard part, the hard workouts, they're so calculated or they should be. And and actually a lot of it is is more what I would call medium. You know, you're not puking in the trash can afterward. You're you're just right. mastering being kind of fast, but relaxed and in control. That's the vast majority of that 20% is actually medium. <laughs> and then a little slice of that 20% is, you know, real hard, real fast running. Um, 
hopefully that makes sense. But that, that's why sometimes I'm, it's hard to answer that question because I don't totally. want everybody to think that you're either jogging or you're all out. It's not, that's not what 80, 20 means. Um, 80, 20, again, from a philosophical standpoint, a 10,000 foot view, it's be calculated. The majority of your running needs to be easy. And then about 20% of, of, of your week needs to be really calculated, specific workouts, uh, designed to make you better, designed to master uh, certain paces, certain training zones, certain efforts. Um, and if you do that, then you're following the 80-20 method. Absolutely. And I, and I think to, to your point, you know, you, you even mentioned it in that earlier workout where you might go do eight to 10 by 800. And here's the key point, people that are listening, is that that eight to 10 by 800, it's not so hard that when you finish it, that you're like, I got to go take a nap, like right away. Like you're not like so completely done and spent from that workout that you can't go and do those 150 hills or those, you know, uh, wh whatever it may be, 30 second hills and do four to eight of them. You still have to have the energy. And so that ultimately determines one of two things, either the, the number of reps you're going to do or the pace you're going to go. Um, and if you're going at too aggressive a pace for so many reps that you can't get that second portion of the workout in, then you're not able to live to the true spirit of that session. And so that's when someone, you know, hopefully your coach would say, Hey, we got to dial those paces back. You're going too hard. And I think what a lot of people, you know, will learn and hopefully get out of this podcast is that your workouts don't have to be puke efforts. They don't have to be these, you know, absolutely just knockout drag out efforts when the reality is, is that they need to be hard, but hard is, is a very relative and hard to describe word, like you said. And so know the intention of every session that you're going into and the why behind it, because like you'd mentioned, you had a threshold session mixed with just little sprinkle of maybe a little bit of anaerobic work or just turnover work or whatever it might be. But the intention there is much longer is that we're doing that so that when you get to race day and you do have to kick at a race because you're being competitive, you have it there. And we're building that for months and months in advance. That's right. Totally agree. Um, Let's see here. I want to, I, we're, we are getting close to an hour and I really try to love to keep this podcast to an hour, uh, for people that are listening. Um, you know, I, I have so many things I wanted to ask you. I think where I'll stick with is I want to understand, you know, we had talked earlier about, you know, the traditions of, you know, this pyramid level of training. And so, you know, this is the time of year where most athletes, unless they're racing like New York, and I know you guys have a few people headed out there, people are going to start to head into their quote unquote off season as the weather cools down here in the Northern hemisphere. Um, you know, do you go into a more traditional base phase where you are kind of just running some mileage or, or what is, what is the initial phase of development for someone, uh, on NAS elite, uh, look like, is it, is it just a mileage and you guys do some strides and mechanics or are there still structured sessions every single week? There's still structured sessions every week. Um, I think that that's important because of some of the things we've been talking about over the course of this hour. You, you, you have to be touching those training zones all the time. I just think it's the sessions are, are, are they're just mini versions. They're prerequisites for, for what's to come. And, and so you might be doing, 
you know, three by five minutes at threshold effort with breaks in between. Well, what is that setting you up for? Well, down the line, of course, you're going to be able to run a full 20, 25 minutes at that pace without stopping. Um, but doing it broken up like that early in the base phase allows you to kind of master that pace that you're going to need to be able to sustain longer for a longer period of time later in the segment. Um, you know, doing some hill, it's, it's a great time to do some hills because hills create that power, give you that quickness, that, that speed and, and, but they're easier on the body than, than running fast on a, on a flat track. Uh, but if you work on hills in the base phase, um, then you can transfer that power and speed to, to the track later in the season. Uh, what else might you see in, in the base phase? Um, you might see uh, mile repeats, but they're a different kind of mile repeat. They're, they're sort of done at threshold with, with, with a break in between. Uh, but it gives you, it gives you the, Kind of you kind of get into that rhythm of what mile repeats are like, and then maybe later in the year you actually are doing them at a, at a, at a much faster pace, a 10k pace, or maybe even 5k pace. Um, I just think it's it's things like that, things that you could really do all year and never get tired. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of stuff you're doing in the in the in the base phase. But I think it's important to do workouts. It's it's more fun <laughs> for one thing, and and, um, and I think we found over the years with training that it doesn't. It doesn't make you, quote unquote, peak too early. Not if you're doing it correctly. I, I think there was a thought back, certainly in the 90s, that, oh my gosh, if you did a hard, if you're a high school cross country workout, or high school cross country runner, excuse me, and you did a hard workout in the summer, you were going to peak in September and never be ready for the state meet. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I, I, I think it's, it, it could be true, depending on what kind of workout you're doing. But if you're doing the right kind of work, um, I don't think there's any reason to shy away from some structured sessions in your, in your off season or your base phase. Yeah. And I, and I think to dissect that word base, like it's not just a base in terms of going out and running easy mileage, which I think is what, what a lot of people translated that to mean, I think to yeah. both you and I, that the base phase is about setting up a, a base of right power development. If we're talking about Hills, if it's going and doing some of those strides and mechanics, it's about giving yourself and going back to the basics of what you're trying to build later, that as you get more specific, what are the building blocks that need to be set in place first? If you need to be able to run, you know, a mile in three minutes and, you know, 50 some odd seconds, you know, what are the prerequisites that we need to be thinking about, you know, six months, nine months out from being able to do something like that. And so it's about being calculated. It's about having an understanding of, of what, what do you need to be able to do? What does the body need to be able to do? So, um, this is, this has been a super fun conversation, um, to just sit down and have with you again, Ben. I know I could probably come back and ask you all sorts of questions about, you know, what workouts do you use when you're doing this? But I think what I wanted people to walk away from is also this, this hope and understanding of what the future of the United States looks like when we look at running and we look at the professional level, um, you know, there are so many groups that kind of rise and fall uh, inside a single quadrennial, you know, in that four years that lead up to uh, an Olympic games, um, you'll see some of these programs that'll rise and fall. And the ones that are successful are the ones that stay around. And I think what I'm most excited about and why I feel so lucky to have you on the pod today is that uh, you guys are doing more than just uh, creating great athletes. You're creating uh, a new outlook for what American distance running can be and what it can do. So, um, you know, for, from me to you, Ben, keep keep pushing the, the limits and kind of keep creating and, and walking towards that vision. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's certainly what we're aiming for. And I'm excited about the future for us and, and for American distance running and global distance running as a whole. Uh, and that's that's all ages, all abilities. I think the sport is very healthy right now. I think we have more people participating than ever. And I think that can only mean good things down the line. Absolutely. And and just before we go, um, I know that uh, you had talked briefly about uh, some of the great social media work that you're doing for NAS Elite. I want to make sure that uh, if people want to follow you and follow the journey of NAS Elite, uh, where can you be found on the social channels of things? Yeah. So if you go to Instagram, it's just Instagram or Twitter. It's at NAZ underscore elite. And uh, that, those are great places to check us out. We're really pushing our YouTube channel this year. So just look up NAZ Elite on YouTube. Uh, we're, we're trying to maximize that platform. And then we also started a Strava club. So if you're on Strava, which most runners are, you can look up NAZ Elite on there and join our club. And you'll see your workouts on our um, activity board and our leaderboard and all those good things. And, and you'll see what we're doing as well. So that's kind of fun. And you can always check out our website, nazelite.com. And we have our uh, links to our final surge plans on there. And, um, uh, you know, if you want to check us out and see what we're doing, we're giving you plenty of options. That's for sure. Heck yeah. And uh, I've loved some of the videos that you guys have put out on YouTube. Um, they're fun, they're inspiring, they're insightful, and they actually give you a great look uh, to the inside of, of what it really is to train like a pro. So um, encourage everybody out there to go take a look at that. Uh, but I guess uh, we've hit that time of, of every podcast where it's time for us to, to hop off. Ben, thank you so much for, again, taking the time today. And uh, maybe we'll make this a, you know a part three one of these days. I would love it. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Thank you, my man.